Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, hello, hello again, and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 785Live.com. It's a pleasure to have you all here. Once again, it's my pleasure to come to you to talk about Shakespeare and his great works. As I always say, I am not a Shakespearean scholar, but I am indeed a Shakespearean fanatic, a devotee, and I love to talk about his works, his life, and, and the things that he did for theater for 400 years. Now, if you've been listening, you know that I've been trying to do this magnificent task of going through all of the plays, one at a time, in order that we think they might may have been written, and talk about each play individually. And we're right now we're in the year 1594, which was a very prolific year for Shakespeare as we understand it. And I'm up to his very first comedy, The Comedy of Errors. Now, some people think he might have written Two Gentlemen of Verona first, which I'm going to talk about next week, but I'm betting there was a Comedy of Errors, and there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, Comedy of Errors is a play that is the, it's the only one of Shakespeare's play with the term comedy in it. Um, and it really follows a very stringent rule that the university wits would have expected out of a comedy. But it also breaks that rule, and I'm going to talk about that too. But the the very thought is that if this was Shakespeare's first comedy, he was trying his best to follow the proper rules of comedy writing for the Elizabethan period. And he succeeds in a great way with comedy of errors. It's a funny play. It's uh, uh, there's a couple of things you got to get around. You got to get around the fact that he has slavery in it. There's violence in it. Certainly, there's prostitution in it. But it is still a very funny play of mistaken identity. So before we get into the play, comedy of errors, let me tell you a little bit about it. And we'll start with what I always like to start with: my boy saying. And now the Shakespeare quote of the week. That's right, the Shakespeare quote of the week. And I'm actually going to give you two quotes because I think this is interesting. First of all, I, I love this quote, so I just had to include it first. It's from Act 1, Scene 2. I to the world am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop. And I, I love that quote. It just talks about how desperate a character is to find another character and how hopeless he feels the whole mission is. And I think it sums up frustration in it sums up a lot of our desires to just find what we're always hoping we will one day find. But the other quote I want to share with you is the quote, There is something in the wind from Act 3, Scene 1. And that quote is one of those phrases, There's something in the wind, that Shakespeare penned that became a part of our common vernacular. And every time I come across one of those quotes, I want to share it with you 
so you know when you say there's something in the wind, you just quoted Shakespeare. I think I've said this before, but there was a study done that said everybody in the Western world, English-speaking world, will quote Shakespeare at least once a day. <laughs> and that's very true. There are so many words and phrases that he invented that are now a part of just our common life. And there's something in the wind is one of them from the comedy of errors. And then I also wanted to give you a fun little Shakespeare fun fact. This is actually more of a theater fun fact. And it's about the word farce. And the reason why I bring that up is the ancient Greeks who invented theater, started writing plays in the first place, they didn't have a term for farce. They called it a comedy or a tragedy. There was one or the other. There wasn't a lot of breakdown of the difference between this kind of tragedy or horrible happenstance or something lighter. And they had no difference between a farce, which is loud, big, strong, and just a light comedy. Well, farce actually comes from the French and it means filler. And in the Middle Ages, theater's middle age, there was a lot of religious drama that was performed. Performing companies would go from town to town, from area to area, and perform these deeply heavy and deeply hard to listen to religious dramas. They were, and people were required to attend so they could hear the story of Jesus Christ and hear the story of the saints. And uh, they were often bloody and beheadings and horrible martyr stuff. Well, they found that if they're in between some of these religious dramas, they put in something light, a funny little piece. It wouldn't be long, and they would use it as filler for the day, give people a break from all the heavy stuff. And that filler was called farce. And to this day, very light, silly, ridiculous situations are called farces or farcical. And Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors is his true farce. He takes this ancient play that was written by Plato's and he makes it even more farcical. And it's the story that we're gonna talk about next. So let me first give you a quick rundown. This is the synopsis of A Comedy of Errors, and it takes place in the, uh, the Greek city of Ephesus. And Ephesus is ruled by Duke Salinas. There is a law that no one from Syracuse can be in Ephesus under pain of death, unless they pay a license fee to be there. And the Duke has found Aegeus, who is from Syracuse, and he's been arrested for being in Ephesus without paying the fine. And so he's told he will be put to death unless he can pay this huge amount of money, a thousand marks, to ransom his freedom. He doesn't have the money. Aegeus begs the Duke to give him mercy, and he tells him the story. He tells him that when he was much younger, he had two sons, and he and his wife also met a very poor woman, and this is the hard part, who had no money whatsoever, who also had identical twin sons who had just been born. He buys the babies from this woman so that his twin sons will have a twin slave. They get on a boat, a horrible tempest comes up, and he has one son and one slave child. His wife has one son and one slave child. They are separated and they are afraid the others are dead. So now, these sons are adult age, and Aegeus has returned to Ephesus in the hopes of trying to find his missing son and the missing slave child that was with him. The Duke takes pity on him, says, oh, this is horrible. What a horrible story. I'll tell you what, you're still going to die. But if you can raise the thousand marks in one day to pay your ransom, I'll let you go free. 
and I'll let you hunt for your sons while you try to raise the money. And off he goes. In the meantime, his adult son, Antipholus, from Syracuse again, also enters into the city, and he brings with him his adult now slave, Dromeo. They, too, are searching for their father. They want to try and bring him home. They think his search for this lost child and his mother is fruitless. They obviously have died, so there is no need to continue this search. So they're trying to find Aegeus to take him home. Well, Antiphasus gives Dromeo some money and says, go secure some lodging at an inn and then hurry right back to me. Well, Dromeo runs off, but then Dromeo comes right back. He's dressed oddly, but it's Dromeo. And immediately, Dromeo says to Antiphasus, Please come home. Your wife is waiting for you. Antiphasus has no idea what Dromeo is talking about and wants to know what he did with the money. Of course, Dromeo says, I don't have any money. And so, Antiphasus beats him. Dromeo runs away and runs back to his wife. Now, here's the kicker about this. The two identical twin sets have the same names. Both boys are named Antiphilus. And both slaves are named Dromeo. It's very confusing already. And plus, you're going to want to find actors who look like each other. So for an audience, they're going to be very confused. The only way you can really stage this is to make sure that the costuming of these two twins is as different as you possibly can make it. It's, it's confusing to read and it's confusing to watch. I've tried. So, note to directors, make something different about them. Now, after Dromeo of Ephesus gets away from Antiphasus of Syracuse, he runs back to Ad- Adriana, who evidently is married to Antiphasus from Ephesus. But Antiphasus of Syracuse doesn't know that. He tells Andrea that her husband beat him and refuses to come back home for dinner. Adrina, his wife, then is certain that her husband is going after courtesans and that he will be unfaithful. So she decides to go find him to see if he has lost his mind. She finds him and convinces him to come back home. So he goes back to her home to have a meal. There he meets her sister, Lucinia. Lucinia is beautiful, and immediately Antiphasus starts to fall in love with her. And he starts to hit on her. And of course, she doesn't like it because she thinks he's the other Antiphasus and tells her sister that, indeed, her husband has a wandering eye. Now, when Antiphasus is brought home, he brings along with him his real Dromeo, who he's, again, met up with, and makes Dromeo guard the gate. Now, both of them know something's weird. It's weird that this woman wants him to go back to her house to eat a dinner. But they also think that maybe she's a witch, and that there are tales that there are lots of witchery that happens in this city. And so they immediately decide for their own safety they better play along for a little while. So, Dromeo from Syracuse is guarding the door when Antiphasus of Ephesus shows up asking to be let into his house. It's his home. Dromeo refuses entrance, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy because you're already in there having dinner. Antiphasus gets angry and again starts to beat up on Dromeo. Again, it's very funny, confusion, blah, blah, blah. In the meantime, he decides, fine, if I can't get into my dinner, I'm going to go off and have dinner with some courtesans and off he goes. Now, Antiphasus of Syracuse gets out of the house, and he and Dromeo are walking down the street when they are approached by a man who gives him a gold chain and says, this is the chain you ordered. Antiphasus says, I didn't order any chain. He says, yes, you did. Here it is. I will return shortly for payment. He takes the chain, goes off. 
And indeed, of course, Antiphasus of Ephesus runs into the same jeweler who says, now I need my money for the chain that I gave you. He says, you gave me no chain. I'm not paying you anything. Immediately, he screams foul and has Antiphasus arrested. Meantime, the sunset hour of Aegeus' sentence has approached. He is going to be put to death and the Duke returns, but is stopped by Adriana, who appeals for the aid of her husband who has just been arrested. She begs forgiveness for her husband who has been arrested over the gold chain. In the meantime, he has escaped from prison. And the two twins, they run off into a church to claim sanctuary. They are followed by, of course, Aegeus, who is also running to claim sanctuary in the hopes of saving himself. And who should be there but the abbess of the church, who reveals herself to be the long-lost mother of the two twins. She brings the twins together, they meet, they see who each other is, and then everything is happy for being reunited as a family including the Duke, who is so impressed by the story turning out so well, he forgives and pardons everybody for any crime, and they all go into the church to celebrate the reunion of this family. This is a very funny, fast-paced play. As a matter of fact, it's Shakespeare's shortest play, and it moves with an incredible clip. In order to stage it, it really takes a director who can understand farce, who can understand that timing, and can try to play off of it so that the Violence within it is not seen as necessarily so violent, but comical. There's also a danger in the play in that the top of it, it's, it's kind of dark. You have Aegeus who is facing being put to death, and that is lingering over his head through the entire play. Kind of a serious tank for uh, a comedy. Then it's also kind of serious at the end when they all come together to be reunited. If you play it too farcical, you lose the human edge of those two scenes. And as you end up having a play that seems disjointed, like the beginning and end go together, but the middle has nothing to do with either one of them. So you have to balance the line between farce and light comedy to keep everything pulled together. This is why the play is very popular, though, in modern audiences. It's been remade a dozen, dozen, dozen times under different titles, under different ways. And I'm going to talk about those on the other half of the show. It's a very popular play. And in Shakespeare's time, it was okay. But actually, it's really one of Shakespeare's funniest plays if you can get past some of the violence and, of course, the slavery issue. All right, so that's the story of Comedy of Errors. I hope you're not too confused. On the other side, we're going to talk about where the play comes from and what this means for Shakespeare and when it was first done. You're listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. By the way, if you want to reach me, you have any questions or some thoughts that you'd like to share with me, I really would love to hear from you. You can reach me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. Send me your thoughts. Send me your comments. I'd love to hear from you, and I will address them on the air. Also, while you're there, check out my website. I'm really proud of it. I really have a lot of great things on there. You can see all of the podcasts that I've done so far on the Shakespeare's Sundays, so you can check those out, as well as look at some of my plays and some of my short films. I'd love to have more visitors there. So thank you all for listening. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back on the other side with Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors. We'll be right back. 785 Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in. 
Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 785Live.com. I'm Shannon Riley and I'm here talking today about Shakespeare's first comedy, The Farce, The Comedy of Errors. Now, as I said before, this is a play written probably around 1594. It's his first comedy, probably, uh, certainly in a very early comedy, uh, and the only comedy that has the word comedy in the title. It's also written in the unity of time. It was a, by that I mean it, it was an Aristotle principle of playwrights that all action had to take place within a 24-hour period. University of Wits really held this very, very true and tried to write their plays contained within a 24-hour period. Not all did, mind you, but this was something that Shakespeare would have been aware of and would have been criticized about in his other plays. So Shakespeare apparently attempts to follow this and does write a play. The action takes place from sunup to sundown within a 24-hour period. He only does this one other time, by the way. He only does this much later in his career when he writes The Tempest, which was probably his final solo work. And that's the only other time that he writes it within a 24-hour period. So he's obviously trying to do this purposefully in a way to help speed up that action. I mentioned we before, Shakespeare likes to speed up action. He condenses things. He does this in Romeo and Juliet from the source material. He condenses it down into three days rather than three months as it is in the original source material. Here, Shakespeare is writing based off of a play by Plattus. There have been people who have argued that Shakespeare couldn't possibly have written Shakespeare, and they point at this as being one of the reasons he couldn't possibly have read Plattus, because it was written in Greek. Well, he indeed would have read Plattus. It was a part of the class requirements when he was going to school, was reading the works of Plattus as well as other people. He would have been very, very, very aware of this play. But there is also another argument well, why this play was written. And it was written at the same time in 1594, a man by the name of William Warner had written a translation of this classic drama in prose form. And it had been published in the Stationery Company on June 10th in 1594. So it's quite possible that this play was, the story anyway, had just come back into public popular attention and Shakespeare immediately said oh I gotta capitalize on this and put out a play because this has just been published and he would have been aware of the publishing simply because it was dedicated to Lord Hudson the patron of the Lord Chamberlain's men and that was Shakespeare's acting company so here by 1594 we start to see a hint that Shakespeare has now joined the Lord Chamberlain's men and it's very possible that he would have been aware of this play the other thing that's interesting about this play is it wasn't written for the theaters it was written to be a gig. It was They were hired to write, have a play for a night of revels that was going to be attended by a large group of lawyers. It was a gig, Shakespeare's first paid gig. Now, as somebody who does gigs all the time, I can totally understand the desire for fresh material, a desire to do something that is light, funny, easy, and approachable. And that's why Comedy of Errors is so much more approachable and so much lighter than any of his work prior to this date. If you take into effect he has just written Titus Andronicus, this is a pendulum swing as far away from Titus Andronicus as you can possibly get with the Comedy of Errors. But he does something else that's pretty clever in this, is that in the original source play, it's about these two twins who are separated from birth who are looking for each other. Shakespeare adds another set of twins in the Dromios. He does this to expand the action even further and the mistaken ideas even further. 
In this play, you feel see Shakespeare for the first time really working off of wordplay, working off of puns, bouncing ideas off of each other in a very hilarious way. There is a very funny interlude where Dromeo meets the wife of his counterpart, Dromeo, and does a very funny speech about how unattractive she is. And it's a, a little distasteful, but it's a very funny speech. So you see Shakespeare playing off of these different ideas of mistaken identity, farce, and broad action, and he expands the story to include these two slaves so that you have even more mistaken identity and even more ridiculous activity. Good directors know how to take a farce and add physical comedy to it. I am quite certain Shakespeare had some incredible physical comedy that went along with this play that we just don't know now because only the words are left. The other point I want to make is about this Aristotle unity of time idea. If Shakespeare is really trying to conform to the university wits and the, the idea of how a play should be constructed, he may have accomplished it in terms of the unity of time, but he certainly didn't accomplish it in terms of comedies. Because at the time, the idea was every comedy ended in a marriage and every tragedy ended in a funeral. Shakespeare follows this list sometimes and sometimes not. And here's another thing that I think is very fascinating about Shakespeare is that his dramas were too funny and his comedies were too serious. Showing again, he was not trained in the university method and thank goodness he wasn't. He puts in the grave digger scene in Hamlet, which is a funny scene at a very pivotal, heavy time just to lighten the mood of the audience. He puts in the man who answers the door in Macbeth, where we get the first knock-knock joke. That was all done in a very heavy, serious play. Shakespeare knows when to break the tension. He knows when to introduce an idea that will lighten the mood and make the play more acceptable, allow you to breathe again before you get back into the serious nature of the show. Likewise, in the comedies. He puts in a serious moment here, a serious character there, and a very serious problem, as he does in this play, with his, the father of the play being under threat of death through the entire production. So, by doing that, he puts a very human element into his farce. We care. We're worried about what's going to happen to this man, and we worry about whether or not this family will ever be reunited, which, of course, they are at the end. But at the end, there's no marriage. There might be hint of it in the fact that Antiphasis was hitting on the sister-in-law of his sister-in-law, but that doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be married. So there is this idea that Shakespeare comes up to the standards of the time and almost breaks them on purpose. He has several plays that don't end in a wedding, or sometimes they suggest they will get married, but after a time of bereavement or after some time has gone by. So Shakespeare doesn't always hang on to this concept that you have to do everything the way the university wits wanted to do it. And why that's important is because by bucking this tradition, audiences went to see Shakespeare because they did not know what was going to happen. It was this unclassified way of presenting ideas. It seemed radical. It seemed out there. It seemed outlandish at times. And that was Shakespeare. Not only was he creating language and words that nobody had ever heard spoken before, because trust me, nobody talked like this. Nobody used some of these words. They went to hear him because Shakespeare wrote them. He was a trendsetter. 
and what set him apart and made him the star of the London playwriting scene. And the beginning of it is starting to come clear here with Comedy Veras. You'll also notice as I'm talking about this show, I'm not talking about the authorship question. Meaning, in all of the other stories I've talked about so far, all of the other plays, from the Henry VII cycle uh, to uh, Richard III to Titus Andronicus, there is some question about whether or not Shakespeare had help in writing those plays. Were they based on other playwrights' works? Did he pick up where somebody else left off? This is not the case in comedy of Ayers. In fact, we're starting into a period now where more and more of these plays, until the end of his life, bear the handprint of a sole writer. And here is a case. It's a sole writer. Sure, it's his shortest play, but it's his first play, possibly, where he went solo. It's interesting that it was never published in Shakespeare's lifetime. First time it was published was in the uh, first folio, which would have been done in 1623, and Shakespeare died in 1616. So it was never published in his lifetime. Usually what that means is either A, the play got lost and people forgot about it, or B, it continued to be performed. Well, this play had two early performances that were recorded. County of Errors was recorded by a company of Basin Common Fellows, <laughs> and it was uh, in December 28th of 1594 was the first recorded performance of it. And then again, it was done on Innocence Day 10 years later. But it was also performed on the 20th of December 1604 at court. Now, if you're holding on for a play that long, then you obviously are playing at other places and you're doing it in your repertoire. So Shakespeare's company held on to it. They must have done it more times. It was in their repertoire, but they never published it because they didn't want other people to have it. It was funny and it was probably a pretty good crowd pleaser. And if your actors had to constantly do Hamlet, they'd go mad. So having something light and funny and relaxing to play in between is probably very welcomed by his company. So it wasn't published in his lifetime, but it did show up in the first folio. The second thing I want to talk about here is that it's a hint that Shakespeare now has a permanent home with the Lord Chamberlain's men. There is no moment that we can say this is when he joined but the play was listed by being done by common men at the time that that's what was said in the registry of it it was performed by common men meaning a common group of actors who did not have a name yet but then it's listed as performed by the lord chamberlain's men in 1604 at court that even the Lord Chamberlain's men started to become known as the greatest company in London. And part of that, not all I'm sure, but part of that is due to the fantastic writing of William Shakespeare and how it brings audiences in. This is the thing about Shakespeare too compared to his other playwrights. He wasn't just a playwright or a poet as he would call himself. He was also an actor appearing in shows, appearing in several plays, several by Ben Jonson, several by Thomas Kidd. He was a part of this performing company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, who later became the King's Men. So he didn't have time to just sit and write as others did. Ben Jonson's catalog is so much thicker, uh, as was many other playwrights of the time. But Shakespeare's plays were slow at coming, except in 1594, he was prolific. He must have been doing a lot of writing. So it's quite common that Shakespeare's play Comedy of Errors was a part of their repertoire and was constantly being remounted and remounted by the company. That's why they didn't publish it. They didn't want other people to have it. So it must have had some success 
on the stages in London for the Lord Chamberlain's Men. Now, I also mentioned that it's been adapted and performed many, many times. Some of these titles, though, are very, very funny. First of all, it, it after the theaters were all closed during the Puritan Revolution, theater took a long time coming back. When it did finally come back in the early 1700s, Shakespeare seemed to lead the way. There was also a lot of adaptations that happened with Shakespeare's work during this period. And there was a very funny mention that Comedy Varus was changed to be called Everybody's Mistaken in a revival play in 1716. I, I love that, and I also love that it also had another one remake that was done in 1734, and it was called If uh, If You Like It, rather than As You Like It, If You Like It. And it was also called Tis All a Mistake. <laughs> and it, uh, these were popular performances that were adaptations of A Comedy of Errors. It was also adapted into operas, several operas as a matter of fact. In 1786 there was an opera that was performed and the libretto was completely based on Shakespeare's story, using much of his dialogue but now written in French. And then there was another opera version that was put out in 1819 with music by Harry Bishop with supplementary lyrics from various Shakespeare plays where they picked and pulled lines that would work for them in the opera itself. But possibly the most commonly known version of it is the musical The Boys from Syracuse, which was composed by Richard Rogers with lyrics by Lorenzo Hart. And this play performed on Broadway in 1936 and off-Broadway in 1963. It was later produced on the West End as well in 1963 and had a Broadway revival in 2002, as well as a film adaptation that was released in 1940. And there's been other musical adaptations for it. Well, a musical called The Comedy of Errors was a musical by Trevor Nunn. And it won the Laurence Olivier Award for Best New Musical when it transferred to the West End in 1977. But as much as we love the play, and as much as it's been adapted for English-speaking audiences, the really exciting thing to me is the Indian culture loves this play. It has been big business in India being turned into eight different films with several different dialects all playing within India. A very popular play among that culture. The final adaptation which really caught me off guard because I remember this movie and never dawned on me that it was based on Comedy of Errors was a film in 1988 which was a modern take on Comedy of Errors called Big Business with Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin playing two sets of identical twins that were separated at birth. Thank you all for listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday this Sunday. Stay barred to the bone. 785 Magazine is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in.